we're largely built yes because Felicity and I have hit this pain where we it's really difficult to tell what you're investing in and, and whether you're making good decisions and the content around it is is generally terrible Welcome back to How I Built This, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and their successes. I'm Jack Stephen, and as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scottish technology recruitment experts. On today's episode, I'm joined by Paul O'Neill, who's the co-founder and CTO of fintech startup, Tillit. Tillit's platform allows people to find and invest into different types of funds. They're on a mission to make DIY investment accessible to all. Paul, welcome to How I Built This. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am uh, full of caffeine and raring to go. <laughs> good, good. No, thanks very much for, for coming on. Um, before we go into to tell it in a bit more kind of detail, I just wanted to, to kind of touch on, on your background a little bit. You obviously studied at University of Edinburgh, computer science. Did you always kind of know that you were going to go into software development? Yeah, I think it was pretty much a dead cert since I was about seven. I think I got a Commodore 64 and rather than play games on it, I was uh, the, the programmer manual trying to do all the little programs that were in it, getting a balloon to bounce around the screen and things. Uh, so no, it's been a it's been a, a hobby that turned into an obvious career path afterwards. Yeah, good, good. And yeah, how was your time at University of Edinburgh? Good. I probably took it less seriously than I should have. We came away with, with a good result, but I think there was probably a little bit too much time spent in the student union and not quite enough time spent in the library for, for my mum's liking. Uh, but no, I mean, it was it's a fantastic university and the, the way they teach computer science is a really good foundation for being quite broadly applicable when you come out. It's not focused on a particular programming language. It's focused on computing and general kind of concepts and algorithms. So I think that's a, it's a really good grounding uh, for a career in software development. Yeah, I think I've kind of seen that a lot of the, the kind of graduates um, I've worked with that come from um, Edinburgh Uni always seem to be kind of high standards. So, no, definitely uh, get that. And when you kind of finished up, it, was it a smaller kind of medtech startup that you, you kind of originally, that was your, your kind of first role out of university? Yeah, it was. So I, I kind of missed the boat for graduate schemes and things. I was too focused on exams and, and coursework and things. And so I came to final exam season no idea what I was going to do. So I was working at Pleasance. Uh, I was collecting glasses during the fringe, which was educational, if stressful, and quite long hours. And then came across uh, a company called Lab901, which was a megtech startup. So they built a, I don't know if you, you've seen CSI and detective programs where you get the kind of bands of DNA that the suspects got and the bands of DNA that the sample's been found at the scene and it shows it's not the right person, it's not the killer. It was that style of thing where it was it's called an electropharogram. And so we built this thing the size of a desktop printer that let you drop in this consumable card and it did this DNA analysis within 15 minutes, 15 samples of DNA. Um, and the, the only other way to do it at the time was making this gel as a scientist and then you had a, a camera over the top and you take a picture over the top of it and you'd try to draw the lines and figure out what was going on and the gel was full of cancer causing stuff so it was a real change but it was very hardware focused and so you do all the software stuff in uni and then you start building software for hardware and realize that you're putting straight against reality really quickly and hardware doesn't behave yeah. the way you want it to ever like the the there's no theory <laughs> behind it it's just it, it brutally brings you into the kind of reality that the physical world is stuff will happen that you don't foresee and then you're trying to cope with it. Um, but it was a, it was a fantastic place to learn the craft. 
um, and very humbling experience as well. Coming out of uni, having done quite well, thinking, oh, damn, I know what I'm doing. And then being faced with, oh, actually, there's a massive mountain to climb in terms of the, the knowledge that you need to be productive uh, was, was fantastic. And do you think that kind of helped you in your career? Like, I think obviously going into a startup, you almost get more kind of exposure because you're thrown right into the deep end. Do you think that kind of really helped you? I do. I think it's the, the main thing that that experience teaches you is that there's no such thing as it not being your job. And if you can take that forward, then you're going to do pretty well in startups in general, because there's not enough people to fill all the roles that you've got. And so at the time, I think day week one, I was painting and mopping down a clean room that we were building. I didn't write any software. That was what needed to happen. And then I did some electronic stuff while we were there. I wrote some customer-facing documentation. I was helping pitch to people. So over the course of the four years, there was so much different stuff that you had to get involved in because there wasn't anyone else there. So it meant if you were ambitious and you were savvy, you could you could get stuck into a lot of different things. And the, you there wasn't any backup either. So you kind of had to bring your A game all the time because there wasn't anyone watching what you're doing. It was like, all right, this is the customer pack we're going to send out. Cool, quick proofread, and out it goes. Um, so it's I think it's been a good ground in for me, certainly, if admittedly stressful. But then it was a time in my life where I'd had fewer commitments and it didn't matter as much if there were 60, 70 hour weeks when you were, when you were working in that environment. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting to hear because obviously, like you mentioned, the, the graduate schemes, they do offer a lot. You get kind of good grounding, but sometimes just getting thrown in the deep end um, can definitely help. And fast forward in your career, it was more kind of, you kind of went on to, to more kind of larger corporate environments. How was that? change going from um kind of startups and, and smaller where you're kind of hands-on all the time to a kind of bigger company it, it was definitely a, it needed a bit of a shift in mindset i think so that when i left lab 901 i i left because i kind of reached the point where i wasn't either learning lots more technically so i wasn't becoming particularly better at developing software but also there wasn't an obvious kind of uh soft skill expansion on the horizon. And I really wanted to try and do something more, more client facing because what we were doing was building stuff for customers, admittedly, um, but we, we weren't often meeting them as a software team. And so being embedded in a team, so I, I worked at, at Scott Logic, which was a, is, is a consultancy in Edinburgh, and I was posted to Bailey Gifford, um, who's a big, big asset manager. Uh, I think they had six, 700 folks at the time. It's now 11, 12, 1300. I think there was a lot more politicking to get your head around to get things done. So in the small company space, what what got output was what you did. Um, you were kind of self-contained. You could just drive things forward. And suddenly you had this world where actually you've got to be a little bit more savvy about who you're talking to and how to communicate with them and how to convince them of an idea that maybe they're not on board with to get the thing done. And so really that became... Because I, I typically don't care if something is attributable to me so long as the outcome that I want happens. So, because all I want is to deliver the value. So I think that was quite a good learning experience in terms of how you interact with very different sets of people and, and figuring out how do you get your point across in a way they can understand that gets them on board to get the value in. In terms of going from, from med tech to kind of FinTech, I want to say that it would be completely different, but I guess with all the kind of red tape with, with both kind of industries, there was probably some kind of similarities. What was it kind of like going from that change yeah so both being regulated industries there's definitely similarities in the sense that there's 
hard and fast rules that you have to obey. And sometimes those rules are written for people who aren't you, but you have an impact on whether you comply with them. So software, no one writes regulations for software engineers. You've got to try and figure your way through this stuff that's quite legally sometimes and quite specific. And you're trying to figure out, well, how does that apply to what I'm doing? So that, that was similar. Um, the difference probably is that the set of rules that we have to comply with in the fintech world, they're less often hard and fast rules so much as guidance or outcomes that a regulator is trying to achieve. Whereas in the medical space, it's a little more concrete as to what you've got to do. But yeah, it's, it's I think having, so I've, I've written kind of policy documents and things and tried to figure out, well, how does this piece of compliance in the, in the biotech space apply to us? How does that work in, in fintechs, a similar situation I've had? So it is, a, it is a good grounding, but it's it all comes down to thinking a little bit outside of your experience and trying to figure out, well, how can I, what's the, what's the regulation trying to achieve? And then how do I contribute to our companies meeting it? It's, again, it's, it's not the sort of thing that you'd expect software engineers typically to interact with. So it's been quite fun having that exposure. Yeah, no, it definitely kind of opens it up. Fast forward again, you've obviously kind of worked in these corporate environments, Scott Logic and the consultancy, then kind of made the switch back to kind of start up at Tillit. How did that kind of come about? Well, so I, I was at Bailey Gifford uh, with either Scott Logic and then I worked directly for them, I think for seven-ish years, near seven and a half years, quite a chunk of my career up until the point I left. And I left really without a plan. Bailey Gifford's <laughs> an absolutely fantastic employer. So it wasn't like I wasn't enjoying the work. I just felt I wanted to change. And so I took a bit of a career break, did a bit of learning, spent some more time with my daughter because she was, of a, of a, you know, I think she was two at the time. Um, so it was nice being able to be a bit more involved with kind of nursery drop-offs and pickups and playing with her. And then I ended up needing a job. So I went to Calusa, which is a uh, an energy technology company based in Edinburgh and Bristol. And we were doing some really cool stuff with smart meter. And again, this is a role I was enjoying. And then out of the blue, uh, someone I used to work with at Bailey Gifford said, I'd like you to meet Felicia. Um, she, she'd like to talk to you about this project that she's working on. And Felicia is the, the founder of Tillit. Felicia Yatmans, she was uh, a fund manager at Bailey Gifford. At the same time I was at Bailey Gifford, we never met in the seven years we were there because it was a big enough fun. And we just got to chatting and, and she described the pain that she was trying to solve. And it was a thing that really resonated with me as, as like, I, I have that too. And I know how I can help you fix it. And so the pair was really hit it off very quickly. And it, it kind of, the role from there is this kind of weird brother-sister thing where it was just ideas flowing from the both of us on how we're going to how we're gonna fix this this issue with how difficult it can be as a retail investor to know what you're investing in. That's really interesting to hear. And it sounds like you, you never were planning to, to become a co-founder. That wasn't in the, the kind of immediate agenda anyway. <laughs> No, it, it really wasn't. It's, I think it may well be the sort of thing you always just stumble into. And had I known what the actual reality of being a startup founder was, I think I'd maybe have approached it slightly differently, those conversations, whether that was, you know, would, would you do it again is a question. It doesn't have a yes necessarily as a, as a firm answer. But no, it, it, was, it wasn't on the plan. I think I always wanted to, I always fancied the idea of starting something. I didn't think it would necessarily be in fintech. I certainly didn't think it would be B2C because like that's combining two of the hardest possible spaces together, regulated industry talking directly to retail. But it's just brought so many fantastic, difficult, interesting challenges that it's 
been a total no-brainer to have done it looking back. No, that's that's amazing. And um, on to, to Tell It Now, you obviously kind of touched on it a little bit there, but do you mind kind of going over what the kind of platform is? Till It is a DIY investment platform uh, that lets you invest in a hand-selected collection of over 100 funds and investment trusts and ETFs uh, available to UK investors. And as part of our selection process, we do really deep due diligence and research and we then offer that to our customers. So we give exclusive content research, uh, including video interviews with the fund managers, the Tillit view, which kind of describes what the fund's trying to achieve, what markets it might do well or badly in, what the risks might be, who it might appeal to as a fund. And then we also, as part of that due diligence, we make that available to customers in general. So meeting notes with the fund managers that we're doing due diligence on, we make available to customers as well. So it's a really transparent process. Um, the idea is we want to support long-term investors with context and color, I guess is probably the way I'd describe it, that you just don't get on other investment platforms. I don't know if you if you do uh, any investing yourself or if you've used other platforms before. Yeah, I've done a little bit, um, but yeah, not anything like DIY or anything like that. Okay, so the... the the experience that you get on some of the platforms is essentially you sign up for an investment account and you get a search box and you put in US funds or, or something and you get two or 300 results and the names don't help you. It's the the JP Morgan something or it's the Bailey Gifford something and they're all fairly formulaic names that don't tell you what that fund's trying to achieve, what it's really investing in, what the opinions of the fund manager are or like how they're going to approach managing your money. And so what we try to do is give that context and color around, well, this is, we're going to let you meet the manager. We're going to ask them a bunch of questions and you're going to hear from them how they think about the world, how they make decisions. So it's, it's, it's a very different approach, really. We're focusing on that discovery and decision-making side of investment. And we, when we say DIY, we just mean we don't offer advice. So you make the decisions. We just give you the context and the tools to be able to, to make those decisions wisely. Yeah. It seems really kind of like a, a personalized experience rather than something that you just kind of stick money in and um, you don't really know what where it's going. And yeah, it really kind of gives you the, the information that you need. I think that's a good distillation of it. The The human element is the thing that probably is lacking in a lot of investment other investment platforms. So we try and we, we've deliberately built a really diverse team to represent the kinds of investors that we want on the platform. And then we're thinking about this in terms of well, what information is helpful to someone who maybe doesn't know exactly what they want. A lot of platforms, what you see is the information that's easy to get because they offer, maybe they offer all 6,000 funds you can get in the UK. No one needs that. But it means that you kind of, the information you get is lowest common denominator. So maybe you get a biography of the fund manager and you learn that they went to Oxford or they went to Cambridge. No one's making an investment decision on the back of that. It's just not helpful context. So we're trying to we're trying to think from the term from the point of view of the customer who's trying to make a decision and think about well what's actually going to help them put this into the context of the rest of their investments and make that decision. So it's yeah, the, the human element I think is the thing that is that I'm proudest of having having achieved so far. Yeah. Just touching on that human element, um, I think I read on the website that Tillit means trust in, in, in Swedish, and that's you're basically trying to get people to kind of trust in the platform and in the kind of funds that they're, they're investing in. 
Yeah, so we weren't we weren't originally called Tillit. Yeah, I think I knew that. So actually, <laughs> we we started off as Venko um, back before the raise in in twenty twenty, and then changed the name to Tillit. Uh, I've still got. I think it was my wife wrote it down on a post it note while I was on a call with Felicity, and she held it up in the kitchen, and I've still got it in a frame somewhere <laughs> where she came uh, where she had the the idea for the name. Um, but yeah, it it's it just means trust in Swedish, and I think it's one of these things that. We try and we try and build that trust in a number of different ways, and a big one is through transparency and honesty. And just you know, if you make a mistake, you're really open about it. If you're making a decision, you make clear the basis upon which you made that decision. Which is why we've opened up the work that the investment committee does when they select funds. We just make that available to customers and say, look, this is why we this is the case that we made for why the the fund should be on the platform. And if that changes, we'll let you know, and we'll also tell you why we think it shouldn't be on the platform anymore. Um, and we have removed the odd fund here and there over time just because certain things have either changed structurally with the fund or we found alternatives that have been better. And we've been pretty clear on the on the platform. It's like, this is why we've done this. Um, so it's, it's, it's trying to build trust just by treating people like grown-ups, I think, is the main thing. You can't dumb it all down to a level where it's you know you're making up your own terminology and things because you're going to come across jargon in, in, in places. But we just try and say, well, okay, when you see this term, it means this. And this is what we, we we make it available to you to make the decision. But it's just treating people like grown-ups at the end of the day. Did you say that you kind of started during the, the pandemic? Um, what was that like? Yeah, not not an ideal not an ideal situation, <laughs> that one. So Felicia and I started talking, I think it was like April 2020. So we were maybe eight weeks into, not even eight weeks into lockdown, something six, eight weeks into lockdown. And everyone was going a bit crazy by that point, I think. But it meant that we could, we didn't have to travel to meet each other. We just had to roll with what we had, which was lots of Zoom calls and trying to get to know each other remotely. And it turned out in the end, it was, I think it was over a year before Felicia and I met in person, just because travel restrictions and things were in place. It took that long for us to meet in person and kind of hug each other and say, oh, you're real. That's fantastic. Just in case, because you, you know, it's, it's a very different experience, right? Meeting people and building these relationships. Uh, on a camera as it is in person. But it meant, I think it's changed the way we thought about founding the company because I, we've been very clear with each other. When we started, I wasn't going to move to London. I've got a family in Edinburgh. We're settled. I love Edinburgh. And Felicia, who used to live in Edinburgh, has no intention of moving back. She's staying in London. And so we were really clear from the outset, like, okay, this means we're going to have two cities that we're building this company around. On the back of that, it kind of means that you need a, a degree of remoteness for the for the team that you're putting together. So we've been remote first since day one, and the the majority of the product has been built with the team partially or fully remote. We've got folks that go into the office occasionally, but it's I think because we were forced to do that remote thing from the beginning, it's it's been an easier process for us than firms that maybe started being able to collaborate in person and, and in office, and then suddenly had the shock of oh. Christ, what am I going to do now? We've we've got to do this over Zoom, and it's really painful. So pros and cons, I guess, but it's certainly some elements of it were harder than than others. Like interviewing, I think is is one of those things that I I much prefer to see someone in person and talk to them in person. You get a, I, I personally get a better feel for what they're about if I can do that. But then you're forced into well, how do you assess them remotely? Which is which is issues that I think every company's had to had to kind of square off over the past few years. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I think when I joined Cathcart about almost four years ago now, I remember it's something we have a laugh about quite a lot in the office that when you used to 
get people to kind of go to interviews you you would have to take like a, a half day at work or somebody would have to have a doctor's appointment because they would go into the office where I'd say 90 percent of interviews are probably more than that to be honest are all remote now so massive like culture shift change um and learning experience for everyone yeah, I think it, I don't know whether it's changed how we assess candidates as well in general, like in the industry. But the the the, the take home test seems to have become much more prevalent. Or did over the pandemic certainly, and then trying to figure out how do you do per programming over Zoom and what's the exercise going to be. But ultimately, I think it probably benefits candidates because it means you're in a place that you're comfortable with and familiar with, and you're not you know having to trek across town and be late for an appointment because your train's not on time and you're stressed about the whole thing and you, you don't get to give your best performance at that interview, right? Because the stress level's so high. So I think we've probably found candidates much more relaxed typically when they've come in and it becomes when we've done interviews, we've we've always kind of focused on learning more about the candidate for the first hour-long call that we have with them. It's more about pitching, till it and learning from the candidate. Well, what are you after? Is this a good fit for you? Is a conversation rather than jumping straight into there's a logic puzzle, which was much more prevalent, I think, before the pandemic from from the interviews I attended, at least. Yeah. No, I think I completely resonate with that. I think what I always see is the candidates seem to be much more engaged with processes and companies when they own companies use the, the kind of first initial call to sell the opportunity to them because yeah, you get a, a much kind of better understanding of it. And like you said, whether it's a good fit from both sides rather than completely quizzing yeah. somebody, putting them on the back foot from the, the beginning is something that I think, especially now people really don't appreciate. I think that the, in startups in particular, you, you really want to be high conviction about the folks that you're bringing into the team because you know, your, your team is small. So if you've got one person who's not working out for you, that has a, an outsized impact. And when you're fully remote, or at least substantially remote, there's a lot more trust really required in the the team that you've got to make good decisions without you know someone watching over them or always being available to to help them out. You need a degree of self-starting. So we, we, we did take the view that in general, we want to make sure we don't missell what the opportunity with Tilla is as, as an employee. Because ultimately, you need to buy into it as much as we need to buy into you. Otherwise, this ain't going to work. In terms of um, your kind of previous career, obviously, you kind of worked software engineering. You're obviously co-founder and CTO. How has the kind of switch been from kind of working as a software engineer? Obviously, I know that you're senior and you would get involved in decisions and stuff, but actually having the kind of full responsibility of the technology, what's that kind of been like? Uh, it's been less... Less scary and problematic than I might have imagined before going into it. So, yeah, I, I was kind of surprised, I think. I had a fairly clear idea of how we would want to tackle the problem. And we're, because of um, the service providers that we're using, the custodian that we have, for example, very API first, um, similar for kind of KYC and, and various other processes, it drives you down a particular path in terms of delivery. I think the, the more interesting thing than even the technical elements of it, because we don't do crazy high-tech stuff. We don't need to do crazy high-tech stuff to deliver the value we want to deliver. It's It's been the breadth of stuff you do in any given day as a co-founder, as a CTO, or as an engineer. It, it's just it, like it eclipses any other role that I've had. So, you know, the, the idea, I was built last, last week alone, building desks, doing R&D tax credit applications, doing code reviews, writing code, doing one-to-ones with folks, 
reviewing privacy policies, talking about strategy for the next few months. We've got a board meeting coming up doing prep for that. It all that's compressed into a couple of days. And so there's so many different hats that you're wearing in, in a very short space of time. I think that's that's the real appeal of it for me is that no day is like any other. It's just what new things are we going to come across today that we've got to either fix or solve or cool ideas like, oh, cool, let's run with that, that you maybe don't get as much if it's a, a bit of a kind of day-to-day, here's your Jira list, go and work down the tickets, which I think is the, the thing that maybe you're more prone to end up in in bigger firms sometimes. Not everywhere, but yeah, the idea that what your your value is to go through tickets in a, in smaller firms in particular, your value is, is much beyond that. It, it needs to be because you don't have people who are doing all of the, the other roles for you. You've got to stretch beyond your, your normal perimeter. I know CTO obviously kind of means something different to, to different companies. I know you very much like to, to stay close to the technology, like kind of being hands-on. Has it been quite hard, like not being as hands-on as before? Uh, on occasion, yeah, for sure. I think the 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 most difficult thing is letting go and not meddling too much. And so I guess the the only saving grace here is that I knew that that would be difficult. And so when we brought in, especially more senior members of the team, we've been very clear, like if I'm getting in the way, stick your hand up and tell me to back off. Felicity is the same with the non-technical side of the business because ultimately we need the guys that are coming in to, to do good things and they're not going to do that if I'm constantly you know, meddling and, and getting in the way. But it is, I, I think I always want to stay close enough to the technology that I know how it's put together for sure. But also just if I see a little issue, knowing on a scale basis how hard that might be to fix or being able to go in and just patch you know, a typo or a little a UX regression or a validation issue, just being able to jump in, fix the thing and go, right, that's, that's a little annoyance. That's a little itch scratched that, that I don't have to deal with anymore. But the I think the way we've structured the team, I very early doors we put in place the broad architecture of how till it's put together. And then beyond that, it's just over to the guys like make good decisions. It's it's not you have to do it this way. And like, cool, justify maybe what you're doing if it's different to what we've done before. But ultimately you're the ones responsible for for what's going into production and if something goes wrong with it then it's you guys that's going to fix it so think about all the things you need to to make that production ready around you know logging or how you'd address technical debt or any of those things it's just we have to trust the engineers are are doing good work and they do they do step up to them i think that's the thing if you give people the leeway to do good work they will just go off and do good work if you if you sit over their shoulder they become the drones that are going down a jira list and you're not really there's no creativity there. No one's having any fun. Yeah, loads of kind of CTOs and stuff that I've, I've spoke to always kind of say, say the same thing. You want to stay close enough to the tech that you can still speak about it with your engineers and not feel lost in, in the room. So I guess that kind of point is, is quite important as well. Yeah, I... I... So not I guess not all CTOs come from an engineering background either. Yeah. So when you... Like, for having done... I think when I joined Tillett, I'd been doing professional development for 14 or 15 years. You you don't suddenly forget that and your skills don't atrophy that quickly, nor would I want them to. But it means that you do, 
you do have like a, a richer understanding of the conversations that are going on. So I'm, I'm not a React engineer. I can do React, but I'd never call myself a React engineer. But at least when the guys are talking about specific issues, I'm keeping up with the conversation and thinking along like where this might hit us in other places in the code base or you know how this might affect performance or productivity in the future. It will be a sad day if I can't do that. At some point it will happen. Because you know, companies companies grow and what they need from CTOs and CEOs changes over time as well. And often that CTO role changes quite a lot over the course of expanding that team. So there may well come a point where actually I have to let go entirely of the of the engineering and change what I'm doing. But for the time being, I think it's a pretty good balance. Good, good. And that kind of kind of follows on quite nicely to the, the kind of co-founder aspect. Obviously, you kind of discussed it already that you it's the kind of first time you've done it. Um, one thing kind of I want to touch on, which we spoke about off air, is kind of being a co-founder and having kind of young children, which you touched on earlier. How has that, that been? Uh, it's been as, I think it's been as challenging as you can imagine it would have been. Um, it's, it's not like it's made it easier <laughs> for sure. But again, it's it's so Felicia and I have always been very open with each other about what we need from our relationship with Tillit and what we're willing to allow it to be and not. And I was very clear up front that my family comes first in terms of everything that I do. And so we've kind of we've built the company around that idea to an extent. So the fact that we're remote means that if you need to go and pick your daughter up from nursery because she's well, you don't have to ask someone, you just drop a note and go and do it. It's not a problem. It's trying to make sure that people don't have to, I guess, hive off that family element and try and package it up and spend less time with their family than they, they should be or could be just to commit to work. So we're trying to be flexible around it. The consequence for me, I think, as a co-founder is partly that we I've, I've been quite conscious in making sure that people who come into the team know there's essentially a, a don't take the piss policy in terms of your family. If you need to go and do something, go and do it. It's not about asking permission and timesheets and all that crap. That's that's not helpful. But also, it just means I have to time shift what I do sometimes. So I'll I'll knock off. I'll do bath time. My daughter will play for a bit. I'll do bedtime, and then maybe I'll dip in later in the evening to pick up a couple of bits, or I'll start earlier and do some other stuff before we do nursery. I think it's just fitting the work around your life. The difference for founders in general, I think, is the expectations are that you're working different hours and with a different level of intensity than everyone else in the company. It's just natural um, consequence of, of running a business. But it's still, I, I've managed to fit it around things. And I've got an incredibly supportive wife and um, extended family around us that help out as well, without which I don't think it, it would be possible at all. We touched on it a bit earlier around kind of hiring. Um, how was it trying to attract talent to a startup during the pandemic when obviously job security was be all and end all for for most people was that tough or yeah it really was not least because again kind of going back to what you want from especially early days uh, what you want from members of the team is quite a lot beyond just output of software you need people to be able to go and think a little bit laterally about the problem that's being solved so we weren't just hiring yeah you know a back-end engineer or a front-end engineer they had to bring with them something else that we could see was going to help them in a, in a startup environment. That was pretty tricky because you're right, the supply was not great for a large chunk of the pandemic, understandably so. Why would people want to want to change when there's so much uncertainty? Um, so we, we I think we got very lucky with 
the team that we put together early doors. It was very conscious the way we went about trying to find them. But we we built that core group quicker than we could have. And I, I think they were the right people to do the job as well. Our, our senior, our lead back-end engineer has been with us since day one. Um, and he's he's got such a breadth of experience in his past that he's been able to kind of put his hand to whatever's been needed um, over, over the past three years. So we got lucky in terms of some of the hires there. And then I think going forward, it's been a bit more considered maybe around, well, what do we, what are we missing now as a company? We, we know that we've got a bit of pain over here. How do we fill that with one or more people that can kind of bring the different skills that we need? The supply issue is a big one. And at the time, the demand so outstripped supply that you were having candidates come to you on a Monday and you get an interview booked in on the Tuesday and they'd be gone by the Tuesday afternoon. It was so, so fast. Because um, a, a lot of the the kind of bigger startups that had lots of lots of capital behind them were just hiring blindly and hoping for the best. And they knew that the way they were going to do it was just test them on the job and then they don't work out, they don't work out. I have ethical issues with, if nothing else, but it wasn't available to us as an option. So I think it was just lots of interviewing, lots of graft. Yeah, no, I, I certainly know about that period. Um, all too well, yeah, like you said, the, the market just moving so quickly and the salaries obviously rocketed up as well. And the fact that people could work remote, you had the companies in London that could offer 10, 20, 30 grand more, obviously starting to shop up in Scotland where kind of salaries aren't as strong, which again, just makes it even more competitive. Yeah, I, th- I think the maybe the difference with what we were looking for was so startups offer more than just a headline salary amount. So equity is a big deal for people, obviously. But also the the opportunity to have outsized impact is very attractive to some folks. So you know you can you could potentially earn more money at a big corporate, but you're going to be closer to that do the Jira task list and that's you versus here's a problem we don't know how to solve it. Go and solve it. Do good things. As I, it's a phrase we use quite a lot internally. It's just like if if people are. They have they found an issue. Typically, the guidance to them is just go do good things. If you want help, if you want consultancy from kind of me and Felicia, we'll get stuck in. But ultimately, we trust you. Figure it out. And getting that kind of candidate, I think they're not they're not typically the people who will necessarily chase the highest salary for the sake of it or the remote work for the sake of it. They're thinking a bit longer term about what do they want from their job, which is where smaller companies, I think, really come into their own because you can have just an influence on the culture and the output that you can't but a bigger firm. No, exactly that. And um, in terms of people's backgrounds that you were kind of hiring from, was that kind of startup experience really essential for you or what was that kind of like when you were hiring? I don't, we did, so we, we added, I think we had it on the specs as a nice to have, but we've never really specified, okay. you know, a particular educational background or a, uh, we we typically we say like here's the technology that we're using. You're not going to have all of it. Here's the experience. Here's the kind of attributes that we want from a candidate around getting stuck into things, being a good communicator, never thinking it's not your job. Really critical one for a startup. But in general, after that, it was just a conversation because we were trying to cast that net wide enough that people who might have thought themselves not suited to a startup would at least come and have a conversation. And it turns out, you know, we, I think probably at least half the team haven't worked in startups before. Um, or haven't worked in, in small companies before. And 
it's been an adjustment for them for sure. But again, it's kind of when you see what you can achieve in so short a space of time at a startup versus the what potentially is more bureaucratic processes in other places, they kind of just adapt and get stuck in. And that's what we're looking for. It's, it's folks that get just stuck into the problem. And really the, the critical thing for us was making clear what the mission was of Tillit and making sure that the guys that were coming in knew that they could contribute to that mission and that they believed in what we were doing. Because again, if they don't, then you're kind of missing some of the value that you could get from that position. Yeah, it's, it's all about attitude and how somebody wants to, to kind of apply themselves. And if you can see that from interviews that somebody wants to get stuck in and is a bit of a kind of go-getter, then yeah, the kind of transition can imagine is a, a bit easier than what most people might think. Yeah, absolutely. And it, a lot of the a lot of the interview process that we had, some of it, especially for the engineers, was was technical focused. But as much of it was just talking to the candidates and learning how they might address different kinds of problems, how they might approach difficult situations, how they might approach fuzzy requirements. Because the thing with a startup is essentially it's the whole thing is is a series of experiments. You don't know what the answer is. If you did, you wouldn't be a startup anymore. You'd be a big company. And so a lot of it is, okay, here's a fuzzily defined thing how would you even start thinking about that? And it's fascinating watching the different ways that people come at those kinds of, of questions, depending on their background. Because again, we didn't look for people who'd been working in finance before, uh, at least half the team hadn't. And so they bring with them a very different viewpoint that contributes very positively to the environment that we're working in. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And um just touching on the kind of one last bit and as a, a kind of co-founder I, I know that you mentioned that um till it have, have kind of raised have you been involved in that process um and yeah what's it what's it going to be like yeah so the the first race that we did so we're, we're vc funded it's a mix of vc and, and angel investors and, and a couple of larger individuals the first race that we did i wasn't properly a full-time employee at the point at which that was happening. So I was doing the kind of technical background work and trying to figure out this is how we would approach it and contribute to the techs and things, but not part of the pitch. Um, that I think will change just as we go forward in the next races. I'll, I'll be a bit more involved in in some of those. But a large part of it is about telling the technology story of, of what we're up to, describing why we're set up to do what we want to do in a, in a really good way. And and you know, just the, the supporting kind of, I, I love writing. So if ever there's anything to be written, I'm more than happy to chip in and, and try and describe what we're up to, either technically or, or operationally or vision-wise or culturally. Um, I really enjoy writing about Tillit. And so I, I find the process of contributing to those decks really engaging. Yeah, so it sounds like it's going to be something you'll be getting more involved in as time comes. And as time comes, what can you can say is, is upcoming for, for Tillit? Obviously, you mentioned kind of... Uh, potentially another raise in the future what else is, is kind of in plan there's a few things really so what we've built so far i think this is the odd thing with fintech startups especially d2c ones is when you think about what an mvp is and there's this minimal viable product is there's a, a term that gets used a lot in startups the m and the v the minimum viable that bar's really high for d2c finance stuff because you can't have part of an investment platform built. It's either not built or it does everything that it needs to do to manage money and be a regulated entity. And so there's a kind of cliff there, right? So we're, we're, we're now at that point where we have 
this great platform with fantastic content and we want to start doing more with it. So we've started building tools to let you rebalance your portfolio. So if you decide you want to be roughly like hypothetically, if you want to be um, 70% in equities and 30% in bonds, just to pick some numbers, over time, your investments will change in value. So that split will change. And so we've built tools to let you see that that's drifting from where you want to be and correct that in one shot. So you can just kind of say, all right, I want to adjust all of these investments, like these 10 investments all in one go, hit go, and we go off and handle it for you. So that kind of thing, we're going to lean on a little more. The other is that we offer the stocks and shares ISA and a, and a general investment account at the minute. Pensions is obviously on the horizon for us as a kind of natural um, succession. Till it's very much about long-term investment. Pension is the the longest term investment you're going to make. So it's a really good fit for what we're doing. So moving into the pension space is an obvious one. And then how that interacts with employers as well is a really important one. We don't just want to release a pension. I go, ta-da, there it is. It's because everyone's got a pension. I think what we want is the Tillet pension to be something meaningful to the employees that are using it. That's something that's going to last them for the duration of, of their employment, of their employed life. And there isn't just a thing you dip into for a little bit and then go back out of. It isn't, you know, it's not just a wrapper to us. So we're starting to think around, well, what supplementary stuff could we do that helps a pension uh, in terms of content or education or, or supplementary products or what, what it has to do functionally to really add value to someone's life? So we're trying not to just um, add stuff for the sake of it. It's all quite considered as we go. Yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. Funnily enough, I've been chatting a lot about pensions with my my dad um, recently. He's a, a couple of years away from retirement, so he's been doing a lot of kind of looking into it, merging different pensions and stuff like that. So, yeah, pretty kind of topical in the, the parents' household at the moment. But that's definitely something that I think he would kind of appreciate. I'm I'm kind of the a, a target audience member for Tillit were, were largely built yeah. just because Felicity and I have hit this pain where we it's really difficult to tell what you're investing in and, and whether you're making good decisions. And the content around it is is generally terrible. Um, yeah, you, you get a PDF and a chart and then you're left to your own devices. That's not really helping anyone. So I think the the thing that really aligns well with that long-term vision is the understanding piece. It's, it's knowing when you make an investment why you're making it. And Part of that is, you know, the, the videos and, and our view of, of what it is, but also it's it's trying to express your view on the world in your investments. So you might want, you know, you, you see the world, if you're especially if you're doing a pension, that's 30, 40, 50 years away for some folks that are joining the platform. The world's going to be a very different place. And so maybe you want to express how you think the world might go in your investments, which is why we've kind of tried to put together this really broad range of things that you can invest in. That's great. It sounds like it's a, a really exciting time. Obviously, you, you kind of mentioned the raise coming up as well. Um, so it sounds like there's going to be a lot happening, keeping you busy over the next year or two, which is which is exciting. I can't wait to, to kind of see how it all goes. Yeah, I think we're we're really good at having ideas for stuff we want to do, and we're just try get through them. Um, we're yeah, because every time we have an idea, we we come up with five more. And so it's just trying to figure out what one of the things that are really going to move the needle for good. What's the best? Well, yeah, exactly. Like what's the, yeah. what's the most impactful things we can be doing uh, over the next wee while. Uh, but no, it's, it's it's a very exciting time coming up for us in particular, I think, uh, especially given the plans that we've got for some of the things we're going to do. And we're likely to, I think, on the back of that, be kind of reaching out to employers and find out, well, 
what do you need from a pension? What do you need from an investment provider? So lots of cool conversations to come as well. Great stuff. So yeah, if you haven't already, um, head to the, the website to, to sign up and, and start kind of investing yourself. Where is it LinkedIn is probably best for to keep up with everything that's going on um, at Tillet? Uh, yeah, so LinkedIn is one option. There's also uh, a newsletter that you can sign up to on the website that gives a little bit of color about what we're up to, but also what's happening in the industry more generally. Uh, as well as the when we add new managers to the platform, for example, we'll we'll give more information about those and the, the little videos as well to to learn more about them. So the website and LinkedIn are two pretty good places to to start. Good, good. Well, um, thanks for taking the time to chat. Um, really interesting to hear all about the, the platform, the future plans, and as we said, it sounds like it's a, a really exciting time. So I can't wait to hear how it all goes. Cool. No, thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening to How I Built This, brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scotland's technology recruitment experts. Whatever platform you're listening on, please click the follow button and share the podcast with anyone you think would be interested in listening. If you're a tech leader in Scotland and want to share your story, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. If you work within the tech sector and are looking for a job or looking for some help growing your tech team, then please get in touch with me, Jack Stephen, or follow us on our socials, Cathcart Technology, or via our website, cathcarttechnology.com.